show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello. Welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Leary. What are we serving today? Got a tin. Oh yeah, I heard that. Lo and behold, I am once again not drinking alcohol. I don't know what's happening to me this season. <laughs> we know it's... we know in general your performance suffers when you don't um so mm -hmm. uh, what's your excuse why what are you having okay because despite it being on theme which again for me is not like me i'm on on brand and on theme this uh -huh. week um but this is genuinely my go-to favorite drink at the moment i cannot stop drinking it it is dash water sparkling water infused with wonky raspberries mm -mm. Um, what is on brand for you though is that you haven't actually told everyone what the theme is. Uh, berries. Berries. Berries is what it is. <laughs> Always takes about a minute. <laughs> yeah. Keep people on their toes. By people you mean me. Um, <laughs> berries. We're going to talk about and berries. And your mum. Hi, James, mum. Yeah, my mum especially. Um, <laughs> I am drinking um, a raspberry eau de vie or a fruit brandy, if you will, but it's uh, a distilled alcohol made from fresh fruit of which mine is raspberry it's one i've had before so once again goes. you're in the office drinking booze mm -hmm. and i'm at home drinking yep. water <laughs> that's right <laughs> i think we should start by clearing up what berries actually are because it's one mm -hmm. of those things where you have like is it a fruit is it a vegetable kind of conversation yeah so Berries are a fruit, they're a type of fruit characterised by their small size, fleshy pulp, and typically colourful and edible skin. They're often sweet or sour in flavour and enjoyed in a wide variety of culinary applications, from eating fresh to making jams, pies, desserts and more. Botanically speaking, berries are defined by certain criteria. Here we go, here's the science bit. They've got fleshy fruit, so their soft, uh, juicy texture, which differentiates them from things like nuts and droops, which have harder shells or pits. They have seeds. Yeah, please, please don't flash your droops at me. Um, <laughs> they have seeds uh, inside the fruit rather than having seeds on the outside. These seeds are often small and distributed throughout the flesh. And they have edible skin. Uh, which is what gives the fruit its characteristic colour and usually flavour and it's um, where most of the fruit's nutrients and pigments are found, not in flesh but in the skin. So common examples of true berries are blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, black currants and grapes. Although we don't often think of grapes as berries, um, but we're not going to talk about them today because obviously we talk about wine a lot in other places. So we're going to ignore berry uh, grapes as berries. But in fact, the word berry does come from the Old English, which originally meant grape. So they are the OG of berries. And as the English <laughs> language spread to the Americas through colonisation, uh, many of the native grape-shaped fruits that grew in bunches took on the berry suffix. So blueberry and cranberry etc um it's important to note though 
that not all fruits that we commonly refer to as berries fit the botanical definition of a true berry. For instance, cranberries. Despite the name, cranberries are not true berries. But they're a type Ooh. of fruit known as a false berry. Those lying cranberries. <laughs> Bananas are classified as simple berries as they develop from a single ovary with a fleshy pericarp. Kiwi, kiwi what? fruit is considered a composite fruit because it forms from the fusion of several ovaries. And cherries are stone fruit, not berries. But I'm still going to talk about them. Um, the botanical classification of fruits is quite specific. So what's referred to as a berry in everyday language might not always align with that botanical definition. There are some berries that we don't think of as berries that we won't include in this either, like pumpkin or cucumbers or lemons. So we're going to look at things that you would consider berry flavoured, I think is the route we're going down. Because in drinks terms, if you ask for something berry flavoured, you're going to ex expect all of these things, not something made of cucumber and pumpkin. <laughs> Agree. Have you got a favourite berry? Oh, um, depends on my mood, depends on the season. I mean, you've got to love strawberries in summer and not in winter. I do like cherries, mm -hmm. even though they're not berries, but they are berry flavoured. How about you? Mm -hmm. I'm, weirdly, it was going to say exactly the same. Mm. Strawberries in the summer and cherries in the winter. Yum, yum. Yeah. I like a lingon berry. Mm. Mm -hmm. Got a little mention of that later on. Shout out to the lings. Mm. Shall I kick off with blackcurrants? Yes. So these are native to Europe and Asia. They've got a long history of cultivation in those regions. They were introduced into North America in the 17th century, but they were banned in the early 20th century. Um, not because they're too hardcore, it was because uh, there were concerns about their role in spreading a plant disease called white pine blister rust. Um, it was lifted, the ban, in the late 20th century and that's perhaps why blackcurrant hasn't kind of taken a hold as much as a flavour in the US because it was missing for so much of the 20th century when a lot of our foundational flavours were being formed. Um, at least not as popular as it is over here. Blackcurrants are really high in vitamin C and antioxidants, as are almost all berries, to be honest. Uh, in addition, the blackcurrant leaves make a very tasty tea which is taken for its medicinal properties, but it does act as a mild diuretic. Um, so be careful, although it's good for anti-inflammatory <laughs> stuff. I think one of the more famous, uh, at least alcohol versions of blackcurrant is cassis, which is just French for blackcurrant. Uh, but we generally call it that here when it's in liqueur form. And it's attributed to a Frenchman named Auguste Denis Legout, who is said to have developed the first cassis liqueur in the early 19th century in the town of Dijon, uh, which is in Burgundy region of France. That's the references I've had. I think there are references that go back to about the 16th century made on like a local, um, in, in local forms, but I think this is where it started to be commercialized. Uh, so it was originally created for medicinal properties, like a lot of these were, um, particularly for ailments such as coughs and colds. So the liqueur cassis gained popularity through the 19th century into the 20th centuries in France and began to be used in cocktails. Um, nearly 16 million litres of creme de cassis are produced annually in France now. So it's still very popular uh, to drink either on its own or as cocktails in France. 
in 2015, it was given its protected geographical uh, status, Creme de Cassis de Bourgogne. Um, you can actually find ones that are protected just in Dijon as well, to be more specific. Um, in 1979, though, Germany attempted to restrict the import of uh, cassis simply because it was too low in alcohol. <laughs> but the European Court of Justice uh, said no. <laughs> they said you can't ban it on that basis, Germany. I can relate. <laughs> I'd, have passed, I'd have passed that. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I needed to be stronger, please, France. Um, there, is, there is more of a history between France and Germany in the, in the cassis which um, will bring us on to probably the, the Kier or the Kier Royale we most often have over here. Um, so Kier, um, which is cassis and white wine, mm -hmm. it used to be called a Blanc Cassis when it was um, first made, but it's actually named now after a person called Felix Kier, who was the mayor of Dijon in Burgundy. And uh, he was actually kind of more famous for being the pioneer of the twinning movement in the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, you know, when when towns, uh, towns and cities get twinned with others, um, where well, it was across Europe initially and now it's around the world. Uh, so before I go on to kind of, you know, what happened there, do you know what your twin cities are? <sighs> There's a sign that I've passed God knows how many times. <clears throat> All right, let's let's do London first, is, and then we'll come there... to Swansea. Yeah, we'll, and then we'll come okay. to Swansea. Do, can you guess any of uh, what London might be twinned with? There's a lot of like Belgian towns and stuff. Is it somewhere in Belgium? Not a single one, no. So London is. Well, the Welsh ones are there. <laughs> <laughs> Lon London is twinned with um, Beijing and Shanghai in China. Berlin okay. in Germany, Bogota in Colombia, Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, Moscow in Russia, New York City in the United States, Tehran in Iran, and Tokyo in Japan. Um, sure. So you've guessed Belgium, just all of Belgium for Swansea. Um, no. <laughs> something in Belgium. In, in South Wales, there are definitely some Welsh towns that are paired with some Belgian towns. Right. Seen it. Well, Swansea is <laughs> not one of them. Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll go through the list that Swansea's twinned with. Cork in Ireland, Ferrara in Italy, Mannheim in Germany, Pau in France, Sinop in Turkey, and Wuhan in China. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, just going to leave that one there. Um, okay, yeah, let's not, let's not dig into that no. one. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, so he he was Kier pioneered this twinning movement, you know, as as a way to kind of create peace and useful ties between different uh, European cities, which is quite lovely in the aftermath of the Second World War. And as part of that effort, um, he would host receptions to visiting delegations, and that was where he introduced this Cassis Blanc drink um, as a way to popularise it, which is now known after his name, Kier. So. Besides giving it to his international um, guests, he was also kind of promoting two of the products of his region. It's very clever. Um, obviously, the creme de cassis, he allowed one of Dijon's producers to use his name uh, to sell it and then extended the right to everyone else as well. And there are a couple of reasons, neither confirmed, of why he might have chosen this. 
I think one was that the German army's confiscation of all the local red Burgundy during the war meant that there was an excess of white wine. And so Kier would have kind of, you know, made it closer to red by, uh, sorry, yeah, Kier as it was called, but the Cassis would have made the white wine a little bit closer to red with its fruitiness. Um, it's also possible that the the white wine of the region was just inferior that year and the Cassis helped disguise the fact. It could have been both of those things at the same time, but either way, he was kind of going, here's these two things that we make, let's put them together and flog it. So the International Bartenders Association says that you should be using 1 to 10 uh, creme de cassis to uh, wine. 19th century recipes call for it to be a third, um, which I think would be very sweet <laughs> by today's palate. And so most modern sources say about a fifth. Do it to taste, I guess. <laughs> when you are in France, if you do order a cure, you might get asked which variation. I think here it's almost entirely the Kier Royale we get given if you were to ask for one, but there are lots of variations in France. So you could have the Cidre Royale, which is made with cider instead of wine, which is mm -hmm. kind of like a cider and black we would have here, except slightly more <laughs> slightly more boozy, and, and they usually add some Calvados as well. Uh, a Communard or Cardinal, which is red wine instead of white wine, red wine and cassis. Mm -hmm. A Kier Berrichon, um, which is red wine and blackberry liqueur, or creme de mure. Kier Bianco, which is made with sweet white vermouth instead of wine. A Kier Imperial, which is made with raspberry liqueur, such as Chambord, um, which I think you'll talk about later, instead of uh, Cassis and Champagne. I had to put this one in because it's probably the best word in French. Kier Pompomousse. <laughs> <laughs> Pompon mousse being grapefruit, uh, so that's made with red grapefruit liqueur and uh, white wine, which sounds pretty great actually. Uh, Kier yes. Petion is made with sparkling wine and a Kier Royale is champagne, specifically. Not sure about this, uh, a pink Russian made with milk instead of wine. No. And a Tarantino, uh, which is made with lager or light ale or a Kier beer. Ooh. There you go. That's, that's the Cassis journeys. Uh, you can't talk about black currant without talking about Ribena, though. Mm, yes. So I thought I'd better do that. Even you like Ribena. As a kid, I did. Mm -hmm. And I remember when they brought out the light version and being offended because it just did not taste the same. But now I actually prefer the light version because <laughs> the full fat sugary Ribena is too much for me. Mm. Now. <laughs> I may pick up on that. But yeah, it's very, very aimed at children, isn't it, Ribena? Mm -hmm. So it was originally manufactured in England by the Bristol-based food and drink company H.W. Carter as blackcurrant squash. Um, development research into fruit syrups for the manufacture of milkshakes uh, was going on in North Somerset at Long, Long Ashton Agricultural and Horticultural Research Station, to be specific. And then Ribena was developed by... Uh, biochemists Audrey Green and Vernon Charlie, who um, were scientists at the University of Bristol in 1933. So the blackcurrant variety of these kind of cordials and squashes that were being created was found to be very high um, in vitamin C. And this drink was then named Ribena, which comes from the botanical name of the blackcurrant, which is Ribus nigrum. Um, 
and that was by a different person by S.M. Lennox in Bristol in 1938. So a variety of people in Bristol had been creating squashes and cordials out of blackcurrant and, and then naming it. It was really um, during the war that things changed. So the, during the Second World War, other fruits that were perceived to be rich in vitamin C, like oranges, although I think we know from our orange episode that there are so many fruits that are higher <laughs> in vitamin C than oranges, but anyway, um, they became harder to obtain in the UK due to German submarine attacks on cargo ships. So blackcurrant cultivation was encouraged by the government and the, the yield of the nation's crop grew significantly. From 1942, almost the entire British blackcurrant crop was made into blackcurrant syrup or, or cordial. Almost all of it was manufactured by carters um, in the southwest. And it was then bought by the government and it was distributed to the nation's children for free. Didn't have the Ribena brand at that time, but that's what gave rise to the popularity of blackcurrant flavourings in Britain. Whereas, you know, they were kind of, it was banned in the US because of um, disease. Uh, production moved after the war to the Royal Forest Factory at Colford in the Forest of Dean uh, in 1947, and, and it still is produced there today. Carters, uh, the OG company, was bought out by Beecham Group in 1955. Um, so it became very associated with health and medicine, and obviously because Beecham's mm. is one of those pharmaceutical companies, you know, where you sometimes see food products that are owned by predominantly pharmaceutical companies and you think what's going on there <laughs> and it's usually because they have these uh, medicinal health benefit routes to them um, mm -hmm. and on that note in 1989 Beach, Beach, Beecham <laughs> and Smith Klein Beckman merged to form Smith Klein Beecham and in 2000 uh, they went on to be GlaxoSmithKline or GSK uh, mm -hmm. so that that's who had it in 2013, worldwide say worldwide sales were about five hundred million pounds, and that year GSK sold Ribena um, and Lucasaid, which they had as well, to the Japanese multinational Suntory for one point three five billion pounds. Um, in 2018, in the UK, Ribena's recipe was changed by the addition of artificial sweeteners in response to the introduction of the uh, sugar drinks tax. By the UK government. I've got some associated controversy um, with that. Well, prior Another to that, a bit controversy. A bit controversy. So, in two thousand and four, two high school students in New Zealand conducted a science experiment to determine the vitamin C levels of their favourite fruit drinks, and they discovered that the ready-to-drink Ribena product that uh, they tested had undetectable levels of vitamin C counter to the brand's <laughs> reputation and ads which said that the black currants in Ribena contained four times the vitamin C of oranges. So they contacted GSK, uh, who did not respond to them. The story was picked up by a TV consumers affairs show uh, in New Zealand called Fair Go. Uh, that was a bit Australian, but you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> which broadcast the story in 2004. They did further testing and then in March 2007, the New Zealand Commerce Commission brought 15 charges in the Auckland District Court against GSK under the Fair Trading Act. GSK pleaded guilty and was fined uh, over 200,000 New Zealand dollars for misleading consumers and were ordered to run a series of corrective ads and place a statement on its website as well. 
GSK maintains the issue only affected Australia and New Zealand and that Ribena products sold in other markets such as the UK contained the levels of vitamin C stated on the product label. Big question marks as to uh, why and truth around that, I would say. Mm, uh, I hope those lads got a bit of the money. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing no, but well done them for pursuing <laughs> that. What a, what a school project. <laughs> uh, one more thing on them. In in 2022, as part of a promotion with Hasbro, a Ribena-themed Monopoly edition was created and the set was distributed to 10,000 customers through an online competition. Bloody hell. I mean, what... Was it just all the ingredients you could collect rather than I properties? I don't know. I couldn't have even bothered to look it up. Do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the, the episode um, a few weeks ago when we were looking at Guinness, how Guinness World Records works, and they basically mm -hmm. sell an entry to any organisation that wants to pay them. I think it's kind of like this. I think Monopoly's that now. Basically, as, as a brand, you can buy a Monopoly version yeah. and it becomes a promo. I think that's probably just what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, the other big soft drink, I think, um, is that's probably associated with it is Vimto. And that yes. was created in 1908 in Manchester, which is older than I thought it was. Didn't associate Vimto with being yeah. that old. Um, but it was by John Noel Nichols, who was initially a wholesaler of herbs, spices and medicines. And he saw the, the market for soft drinks opening up because of the temperance movement um, and with the passage of the 1908 Licensing Act as well. It was originally sold as Vim Tonic, as in like, you know, energy tonic, Vim, Vimto. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was shortened to Vimto in 1912. Uh, so it was originally, again, a health tonic or, or medicine, which was then re-registered as a cordial in 1913. It's... um. It's quite popular in, in Manchester with, a his, with its history. There's an oak sculpture named A Monument to Vimto, created by Kerry Morrison and installed on Granby Row, which is the location of the original Vimto premises uh, in central Manchester in 1992. And it was restored and repainted in 2011. Uh, one of the things I wanted to pick up on from Vimto is, do you remember, it was from the 1990s to 2003, and Vimto's print ads used the cartoon character Purple Ronnie. Yes, I remember, yeah. Remember him? So I haven't seen him around for a while, but he seemed like he was everywhere <laughs> in the 90s. Um, and the character Purple Ronnie had these uh, sort of rudish poems as well by uh, Giles Andrie, um, who, who's the creator. I've got a couple of them just to send you down memory <laughs> lane. This is a poem about bubbles. Vimto is a smashing drink, so why not have a slurp? It's full of fizzy bubbles that will make your bottom burp. <laughs> and there's some nice illustrations of uh, people going... <laughs> this is a poem about being gorgeous. You're so unbelievably gorgeous, I thought I'd just have to say I'd love to submerge you in Vimto and lick it off slowly all day. Wow. <laughs> God. Yeah. Anything went in the 90s. <laughs> um, he he sold the character of Purple Ronnie to Kulabi in April 2007 in a deal worth £4.8 million. Yeah. Vimto replaced the character with its catchphrase, Schlurp all the purple, which Ooh. I did not remember at all. 
until I heard um, a catchy tune about a boy who accidentally um, brings his dad's pants to the swimming pool, which is <laughs> based on the song Dead Skunk by Loudon Wainwright III, a.k.a. Rufus Wainwright's dad. Um, do you remember that? I don't think I do, no. I might put a, I might put a blast of that in at the end of the episode. Um, I don't think it'll infringe any... I don't think people care about the copyrights of that. I'm going to... I'll try it. <laughs> See if we get sued. I'll put, I'll put it in later. Um, the cordial version of Vimto was uh, vegan until April 2021, when Vimto hmm. decided that it wanted to put sheep's wool... Uh, derived vitamin D into what it. What the hell? Ugh. Yeah, it's quite a choice, isn't it? You're like, it's it. Twenty twenty one feels like the wrong year for you to decide to Did, yeah. put wool in your drink. <laughs> 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 so you know, if that bothers you, instead maybe stick to the alcoholic cocktail known as Cheeky Vimto, uh, <laughs> which we consume in the UK, which contains no Vimto. It is instead port and blue wkd because <laughs> it sort of looks like it, it tastes disgusting um and there's a variant on cheeky vimto called dirty vimto where instead of the port you use buckfast well which get involved with that this christmas we know who's going to be on that this year <laughs> all right that's that's enough from black current and me what have you got uh raspberries i'm going to talk about mm. You did a hint that I might talk about Chambord, and yes, I am going to talk about Chambord. Um, are you a fan? Do you drink it? Have you had it? Um, I have had it in the past. I'm a big <clears throat> fan of raspberry. Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember the last time I actually had raspberry Chambord, though. As I say, I've got a raspberry eau de vie, but Chambord, I think, is a bit more like a sweet liqueur, right? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where... If you, a lot of people are aware of it but have tried it, but more often than not, people will claim to not know what it is. But then when you explain it to them or point it out to them, they're like, "Oh yeah, I know," mm -hmm. because it's got such a recognisable bottle, and it's a staple in cocktails, and it's it's used for all kinds of different drinks. So it's almost always behind a bar, <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's very distinctive. You've definitely seen it. Um, it's like a little round spherical ball, glass ball, bottle. It's got a deep purple liquid inside. The lid is a gold, it's plastic, but it's gilded plastic gold, a crown on the top. And it's got like a, like a gilded, again, gold gilded plastic belly band around it with the words Chambord written on it. It looks like a religious like relic. It was actually modelled after the Globus Cruciger, which is um, the Auburn Cross, the Christian symbol of authority that's been used since the Middle Ages. I really think that the next <clears throat> person to get coronated should hold one of those. What like, Chambord? Yeah, instead of <laughs> instead of the Auburn Scepter, I think they should have a bottle of Chambord and a yard of ale. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have looked really impressive if royalty did that up until 2010, when they've actually changed the bottle design, um, so it no longer looks as exuberant. Um, Boo. So. It, I found an article on like the reasons why, you know, it's like some packaging article and there were quotes from the brand and marketing team there and explaining why they'd done it. And it was all bullshit. I won't go into it. But basically, 
They've done away with the, the crown lid. That's just become a flat gold screw-on cap, which is pretty boring. The kind of gold gilded plastic kind of cage that used to sit around it and around the belly of the bottle, that's completely gone. It's just a, a regular label now that is stuck to the bottle that says shambled on it. So it's a very dumbed down kind of version of it now. They've kept the crown iconography though on the bottle itself again as a sticker. Um, long story short, they claimed that um, they wanted to modernise it. I think I read the word contemporary about 12 times in this long article. Um, but they also held on to this fact that apparently bartenders didn't like that kind of gilded plastic thing around the bottle. It would often become loose and become a pain in the arse. So more often than not, they'd do away with that and just throw it in the bin, which then loses all the brand identity of the bottle. So by having it on as labels, you don't lose the brand name. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, it's not as pretty as it used to be. But let's talk about the actual drink itself, Chambord. Uh, it's a naturally flavoured raspberry liqueur produced in the Loire Valley, south of France. Uh, sorry, south of Paris in France. Um, <clears throat> it's officially called Chambord Liqueur Royal de France. Uh, it's based on a 17th century recipe that's said to have been served to be uh, to King Louis XIV at the famous estate Chateau de Chambord. So he used to have like hunting trips and stuff to that chateau and raspberry liqueur was a kind of popular drink then. Um, and he loved it, so they called it Chambord. Who made it? It was an American guy called Norton Cooper. His nickname was Sky. Didn't find out why. I looked into that a lot, but Norton Sky Cooper is the man who uh, invented it. I say invented it. He nicked the recipe and called it Chambord. Um, he inherited his father's liquor company, um, Charles Jacquin and Company. Um, and it was through this company he launched his sweet raspberry liqueur under the Chambord name in 1891. So quite a long time after they were serving it to King Louis. Uh, it's made using a very complex three-step process. The first stage sees black and red raspberries macerated in a neutral spirit for up to six weeks, which yields a rich aromatic first juice. That liquor is removed and a second batch of spirit is added to the fruit to extract even more flavour from them. After two weeks of maceration, this liquor, called the second juice, is also removed. The berries are then lightly pressed, which creates the third juice. These three juices are then combined to form a berry infusion, which are um, added to cognac, Madagascan vanilla essence, Moroccan citrus peel extracts and herbal and honey essences. Once finished, liquor is bottled at a relatively mild 16.5%. Uh, though a range of essences and extracts are included in the final blend, they are all derived from completely natural sources. No artificial flavourings, no nasties are added to it. It's totally natural. Which I would argue makes it a health drink. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Look, all, all of the ones I've researched for this started as health drinks. And I say, may they continue as such. <laughs> yeah, it's completely natural. Therefore, it's healthy. Mm -hmm. um, the brand itself was purchased in 2006 by Kentucky-based Brown Foreman. Uh, they're absolute giants in this world. They own, God, like Jack Daniels, just 
all of the billions. Um, they bought it for $255 million, which is, I thought, it's quite a lot considering that it's not something that you use a lot of, consume a lot of. It is more often than not just added as a little bit to cocktails and drinks and... So yeah, mm. I, I was surprised how big it was. I suppose the thing is with that though, when, when you're talking about cocktail ingredients, pretty much all bars, at least kind of in the West, are going to have one. Mm -hmm. When you think of it like that. This is true. Um... So yeah, it was it was Brown Foreman, the guys that bought the company that introduced that new and I quote inverted commas improved bottle design. Um, but they also tried some new product development. Um, at the same time as the packaging redesign, they also announced the release of a Chambord branded raspberry flavored vodka. It was two thousand ten that they did this. Um, the product launched in the signature bottle and it was billed as a visually interruptive blend of French vodka and Chambord's trademark black raspberry flavour. However, the uh, the interruption was temporary. <laughs> it's uh, being discontinued already. It didn't last long. <laughs> it was literally an interruption then. Like a... <clears throat> <clears throat> oh, sorry, never mind. <laughs> Um, so yeah, let's stick to Chambord. Uh, how to drink it. You can drink it on its own. It's a lovely experience. Uh, it's nice low proof. So in a chilled glass or on the rocks. Um, some people enjoy it with a splash of cold seltzer or sparkling wine. Um, I drink it with champagne myself. It's very nice mm -hmm. in champagne. Like a Kia. Ex exactly. Perfect. Um, but it is best known for its versatility as a drink mixer. Um, Due to its popularity, when a cocktail calls for any kind of raspberry liquor, it's Chambord is the is the first choice. So, like you say, every bar has it there because if anything's like yeah, add raspberry liquor, okay, Chambord, and it goes. It's almost like I'm trying to think of the word when when you don't realise that something is a brand, you actually think it's the mm. name of the drink itself. Yeah. I think it's it's that level of uh, recognised. Uh, it's the key ingredient in several popular cocktails, including many martinis that rely on its sweet raspberry flavour. Um, it is most often paired with vodka, though it does also work with gin, rum and tequila. I've never tried it with tequila, but I'd imagine that would be good. No, but that sounds very good because tequila is great with fruit. Mm -hmm. um, just it make, also makes it as well... note for later. <laughs> okay. That's just reminded me I've got to tell you something about. Remind me about this when I get onto my Germany section. Oh, I'll try. Okay. okay. Teaser. <laughs> um, it also mixes well with other liqueurs, so a variety of fruits. Um, and it's a good companion for, as you said, sparkling wine and soda. You'll also find it in several sweet and creamy dessert cocktails. So they're ever so versatile. Chambord rounded up my raspberry section nicely. And it's made me really thirsty. I want to drink lots of cocktails. Mm, well, more for you for opening a can of water. <laughs> um, right, well, I am actually going on to the German section now. Uh, so oh, okay. I, I thought this would follow on nicely from your raspberry. Is So I, I've been in Berlin uh, for a few days recently. And so there's a few things I, I promised the uh, people I was with that I would talk about. Uh, first of all is Berliner Weisse, 
we have mentioned it before, but it's worth repeating here. It's a what I'm going to talk about a beer on a berries episode. Why? <laughs> um, so Berliner Weisse is a cloudy sour beer, around five percent um, alcohol, and it's a regional variation of the wheat beers from northern Germany, which go back to at least the 16th century. Uh, by the late 19th century, Berliner Weisse had become the most popular alcoholic drink in Berlin. There were up to 50 breweries producing it, uh, although that went right down to two breweries uh, by the end of the 20th century. Um, it had become less popular, and also those, I think those two breweries were owned by the same person, which the same company, which is um, Ertke, as in Dr. Ertke of Cakes fame. Um, <laughs> off of Cakes. Off of Cakes. Uh, <laughs> so most people think it goes back to... Um, an unknown beer being produced in Hamburg, first of all, which was then copied and developed. Um, there was, um, uh, it was being brewed in Berlin by a doctor called J.S. Elsholtz um, in the 1640s. We know that. Uh, an alternative possibility is that it was migrating Huguenots uh, who developed the beer from the local red and brown ales as they moved through Flanders into northern Germany. And some sources say um, that in 1572, we find the earliest record uh, of it being brewed in Berlin. There's lots of different stories, we're not entirely sure. Uh, Frederick Wilhelm encouraged the spread of the beer through Prussia, declaring it as the best for our climate, and had his son, Frederick the Great, trained to brew it. Um, and another popular story is that Napoleon's troops dubbed it the Champagne of the North. Um, from a reference in 1809. Typically, it's not as strong now. It's about 3%, um, although the strength does vary. Uh, traditionally, beers that are brewed in March, known as Martin beers uh, there, uh, were brewed stronger and allowed to mature over the summer. Um, and so some people think that might have happened with uh, Berliner Weisse as well, and the bottles would have been buried in sand or warm earth. Right. I've just told you a lot about Berliner Weisse, it's possible histories, it's a, it's a sour beer, it's not like the normal wheat beers you get here. You wouldn't want to drink it as is, is the point. And this is where <laughs> the berries come in. It is usually served there in a bowl-shaped glass and they'll drip syrups uh, down the side. Most popular mm. is raspberry or himbeer syrup. So we, we went out for a meal one of the nights and a friend ordered a Berlin of Isa without realising that you have to then choose a syrup to go with it. And um, the waitress who was serving us, who was uh, very nice and sassy, was like, you you must you must have a flavour. It tastes like shit. That's <laughs> 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 exactly what she said. <laughs> and he was like, oh, OK, uh, yeah, raspberry. Um, so you so you get it kind of looking weirdly sort of like a milkshake because you've got the the syrup and then the beer uh, to top it off but that's what gives it the kind of the sweeter the more palatable taste mm. uh, so don't forget that if you're in berlin and you think oh i'll have a wheat beer it's not like the other wheat beers you get you have to put a flavor with it as well the other popular one is that we don't really get over here as a flavor is woodruff uh, or waldmeister syrup um and it's um <laughs> here's how to make it sound really tempting as a, as a as an aroma it's used in potpourri and as a moth deterrent <laughs> yep um industrial usage of woodruff for sweets which was really popular um, in germany 
was prohibited in 1974 due to a substance called coumarin, um, which is the, the flavorant found in it. It's toxic to rats and mice in studies. Um, it turns out most animals find woodruff either disgusting or toxic, um, but Germans in particular seem to really like it. Um, it, ha it's, <laughs> it hasn't been found to be harmful to humans, to be honest, even in large doses. Mm. It just it it goes through a different metabolic pathway for us. So um, although it hasn't been proven to be toxic, it is still banned, and the flavour that they use for Woodruff in Germany is achieved artificially now instead. But it must be the smell of <clears throat> you know those little balls you can buy mothballs yeah. to put in your wardrobes. It must be that smell, Woodruff. Yeah. And fun fact: when my <clears throat> mum was pregnant with me, that was her craving. <laughs> Like, well, she should have popped over to Germany for some Berliner Weisses. <laughs> now we know. I'm surprised she didn't. Be. She um, she obviously couldn't eat them, but she used to just open bags of them and just like <laughs> sniff them like crazy. And she did say sometimes when it was like a particularly bad craving, she did used to just mm -hmm. rub one on her teeth <laughs> wow. just to try and get her fix. <laughs> now we know. You can tell her this. You can tell her there is an outlet for her cravings. And if you would like to learn more about berries, uh, hear the second part of what happened in Berlin, or indeed whether Valeri's mum rubs anything else on her teeth, then you'll have to tune in to Berries Part 2 in the next episode. Uh, but for now, let's be played out instead of our usual theme tune by the wonderful song Dad's Pants from the Vimto ad, which tells the story of a young chap who has accidentally brought his dad's pants to the swimming pool. Cheers everybody! Here's a story with a warning Billy grabbed his film so early one morning Met his mates at the pool Packed his dad's pants now What a fool! He's got his dad's pants in the middle of his robe Dad's pants in the middle of his robe Dad's pants in the middle of his robe And he's going swimming the answer to the problem everyone knows was to shuffle the purple so the model goes. Didn't need to worry and he didn't have a care. Cause when you say spin toe, don't matter what you wear.